Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 5 as we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a good study. It will continue to be a good study. We're going to keep this going all the way through uh, right before uh, Pastor Tim comes and begins his own new series that he has already lined out for us. And so we're excited to, again, continue to pray for them and, and the process that they're going through as far as moving goes. But as we're looking through Matthew 5, Jesus is concerned, again, starting in the beginning with the Beatitudes, to describe the citizens of the kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to describe... Number one, this is how you uh, come before me repentant in the Beatitudes. And he works through uh, the salt and light. And this is, as a Christian, how you should live. This is how you should be. I'm calling you to do and be these things. And then he comes to the point where he explains why he's come to fulfill the law. Again, not to abolish it or to get rid of it, but to fulfill it. And then as we keep going through the next few verses and chapters or next few sections of this passage, he's going to lay out in more detail why he's saying the things that he's saying. And that's why the title of it is, With All Authority, Jesus Expounds on the Law. Again, he is going to show and use his authority as the Christ to expound on the law. He's not writing a new law. He's not coming up with something different. He's expounding on what the law should have been and not what the Pharisees and the scribes and other people had made it. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's important that he taught like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. He was preaching to Jews who had been taught the law. And obviously, they would evaluate any new teaching in terms of the law. So from verse 21 through the end of chapter 7, it's nothing but an elaboration of the position that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we're going to be citizens of heaven. And remember, as the Jews are listening to Jesus say, you have to exceed this. These are the best of the best. If I'm going to exceed these guys, there's no possible way. But again... On the outside, they looked phenomenal. The words they spoke were probably tremendous, but their hearts were as dead as dead could be. And Jesus is dealing with the heart issue here. And so through the rest of chapter 5, we'll see the Lord give true account of what the law actually really is. He's going to say multiple times over, you have heard it said in days of old or in the past. And he's going to have these multiple statements as he walks through what he's trying to line out as the truth that they need to know. And again, he's not giving a new law. We need to make sure we get that. There's a lot of teachers out there, even people who say that they're Bible teachers, who say Jesus came to give a different, new, updated law. No, the scribes and the Pharisees throughout time since the law was given had added and drilled down and done their own little thing. And again, they think, well, we're fine because we're here when they're missing the entire point of what the law was given to do. And Jesus, again, is setting himself as the authority And the law was not meant to be mechanical. It was meant to be truly life-changing and living. And Jesus is bringing that to light more so as well. So the first thing that he comes to in verses 21 uh, through 26 is anger. Yours may say murder as a title. It has other things depending on the translation that you might have. But the very first point that he comes to is anger and murder. In my humanness... I thought about having someone else preach this message Uh, because throughout my life, I've had a temper. It's usually in certain circumstances and certain times. It's often sports, but 
God has really done a mighty work on me. Uh, people who see me actually now versus back then, uh, if, if my friends, if they could know me now, like I have some really close friends I played sports with, if they could watch me now, like I'm drastically different than I used to be, but still, it resides there, and I hate it. I was actually confessing to my son, Cal. We were having our uh, quiet time at night, reading his Bible story and his thing, and I actually confessed to him that I didn't really want to preach this because it's something that I still struggle with and I don't like it. And he says, he told me, he goes, if it's hard for you, preach it even harder. <laughs> so we're going to preach it harder. And he don't, I don't think he had a clue what that meant. But the fact that I left the room thinking, I do need to preach the word even harder to myself. Not hard on myself, but preach the gospel every day to myself in such a way that I remember that he is making me anew. But I thought that was phenomenal. And growing up, I had a grandma. She was a feisty grandma. And uh, Jake and I had commiserate about the same kind of grandma. And this grandma actually had uh, quite the temper as well. And oftentimes would be heard saying, I'm going to knock you into next Tuesday. And I remember as a kid thinking, what kind of anger do you have to have to want to knock somebody into next Tuesday? And then we began to tease her about it, saying, I have a test on Tuesday. Can you make it Wednesday? <laughs> I mean, this grandma was intense. She was a, an interesting lady. Um, she actually did love Jesus, but was very aggressive and legalistic and all those things. But I remember thinking about someone telling a story and the family got together and we were telling a story about her. And I was like, man, she really struggled with anger. And then the Lord did one of those things where it's kind of that spiritual tap on the shoulder like, you can't say anything. The Bible has much to say about anger, though. And, and probably because it's such a common issue. The things that cause my anger to spike and the things that cause your anger to spike might be different things. There may be things that I completely do not care about how it happens, and you care so much about how it happens that it causes you to have anger. And there's things that I probably get angry about that somebody might look at and go, why would you ever be upset about that? I mean, yesterday was a perfectly good day. The Wildcats lost, Jayhawks won, and the Astros had to ruin it. <laughs> but getting back to the seriousness of the scripture, the Bible has a lot to say about it. Whoever slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. That's Proverbs 14, 29. Psalms 37, 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. James 1, 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Ecclesiastes 7.9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. And on and on and on and on. I think the search that I did ended up coming up with 1,000 Possibilities. Now, I'm sure some of those are like just extended versions of the same passage, but it's rampant. And so Jesus is addressing this. 
Jesus is saying, not saying in this passage that anger and murder are the same thing. That if you've ever been angry, you are equivalent to having killed somebody. But he is saying that that's the first step down the path. That if your heart comes to anger, you are on the first step down the path leading to further things that can cause issue. And he's saying that you are not outside the law because you haven't murdered. Again, the Pharisees were like, we haven't killed anybody, so we're fine. But he has watched them become angry with the people in the courts. He has watched them become angry with people who have a different uh, way of doing things. He's watched them become angry at the people that he came to save. And he knows that deep down their heart again is the issue. And they are dead in their trespasses. And he's addressing Jews, scribes, Pharisees, and everyone else in the place along with, again, he's preaching to the believers that this is the way to live. He's dealing with the heart. And what the issue at the root of the heart is when we are angry, we then produce other things that, again, as the scripture says, does not produce the righteousness of God. 1 John 3.15 tells us that anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And again, it's not the fact that we have hated them and now we're killing them, but we have such an anger in our heart, such a deep welling resent in our heart towards someone or something that we are heading down the path that is unholy and unrighteous and wrong. It is the hate in our hearts that causes our sin. Few people actually actually murder someone, but hope harm on people. It's an amazing thing at how much we can despise other human beings made in the image of God and have such anger towards the things that they do towards us. And again, I'm preaching this at myself, that we hate in such a way. And in our hate, in our anger, in our pride and everything else that goes into anger and these issues that we have, we live out our anger like pigs in slop. We roll around in it. We let it fester. We let it build. We let it hold tightly to us instead of casting it off as we should. And so when we reach the point of contempt and hate in our anger, we've crossed another threshold altogether. There's a reason why he says, do not become angry. Do not let anger reside in you. Because again, he knows, Christ knows where that leads the human heart. In the passage in the NIV and others, besides the ESV, the ESV doesn't necessarily say it. It doesn't say raka, but it says raka in the word. So I'm going to read the first section here to you as we're working through and in verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, or raka, whoever says raka to his brother, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so as he's walking through the passage, you may not see the word raka in your translation, but raka is there. And you also see you fool. Everyone, every one of the translations seems to have some sort of form of that. But it's important to get the context of this. It's important to understand what is Jesus saying when he says this? Because some of you may have called your quarterback or coach yesterday a fool. That's not putting you under the same judgment that it's talking about here. Raka basically means empty-headedness. You're calling someone 
an empty-headed person who has no value. Their thought process, their personhood, their whole being brain-wise and thought-wise is worthless. I mean, that's the, there is no definition that's like, here's the perfect definition of Raqqa. But basically, all these things add up together to, you are a worthless person of any thought. And then you are saying they lack wisdom or any intelligence of worth. And then when Jesus says fool here, it is an attack on the character and heart of the person. It's not just a, man, you're foolish. When we say fool now, it's like, you're acting crazy. You're being weird. Whatever it is, this is an attack on the character of someone. So if you and your words haven't said the word fool, but you have attacked, you've gossiped, you've said things that is attacking the character and the heart of the person, you are at fault in what is saying here. Honestly, we've been watching stupid commercials, and Tuesday we're going to see this over and over and over again because everybody has a thought on the other guy and the other person, the other girl, whatever it is, and we will see some stupid things said. Be careful what comes out of our mouths. As a parent, it's so hard because you may think as you do your thing quietly on your own. You could be driving in the car by yourself and you say something about the cars that are around you or people that are not as wise about their driving habits as you are and forget at some point that there's an eight-year-old in the back who hears you say that and asks, why would you say that about that person? What Jesus is getting at here is the fact that we're basically devaluing people. Our words, our anger, our hate, our motives are all essentially devaluing the person that we are aiming them towards. We're implying their worthlessness. We are standing in judgment of them in our anger and finding them lacking. All have value because we all have the same creator. We are all created by the same creator, given value at our birth or at our creation, at conception. He has made us, formed us, and put us together. And because of that, we have value as he has given us value. So when I attack someone who is created by the creator and saying that they are less than worthy, then I don't really get where my value comes from. You have no more value in yourself than the person next to you who has a complete opposite opinion about things that you have. Because your value is only found in the Creator. And as Christians, the more we become like Christ, we should even see even more so the fact that, man, I need Him more. My value is not in myself, in my things, in the stuff that I can do. To a greater extent... I should lay off and pull back and throw off the things of anger and despise because I realize in the midst of that I'm just one sinner standing in judgment of another sinner when ultimately I don't stand in authority like Jesus does. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, starting in verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their deeds, to their needs, that it, may, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. 
Some may ask, but didn't Jesus get mad? Isn't there a right kind of anger? Well, yes. You're not Jesus, though. Let's get that straight first. Jesus' anger is a different kind of anger. It is a judicial one with all authority as the creator of all things. Matthew 21, he is mad at money changers. Mark 3, he's mad at the hypocrites. Uh, Mark 7, he's angry with the disciples because they're so foolish about things. And again, like I said a minute ago, our anger is usually pitting my sinful heart against their sinful heart and coming back finding that I'm better somehow. So in your anger, be very careful about the fact that we are pitting ourselves against one another as somehow we are better. And Jesus was slow to anger, and his anger was mingled with grief for sin. That's a completely different stance and viewpoint of anger than any of us probably have. We burn white hot at petty things or offenses like traffic. We, we are quick to be angered at personal offenses against us, but slow to anger over sin in our own lives that offends God. We should be so angry at the sin in our lives, so hatred, so much hatred towards that. That's righteous hatred. Hating the sin with such, a, such aggressiveness that we want it out of our lives to be taken away forever. Our anger should be at the things that are apparent to God. The acts, not the people. Sometimes we focus so much on the people we forget. Again, as a sinner, I want to see them redeemed, come back to Christ, to, to receive Him as their Savior. I can hate the act, but man, we have to have a heart for people who are so far from God and so different than us. Yeah. I was having a conversation this week with someone, uh, last week, sorry. If, if, if somebody with this thing came walking through the door, they gave a pretty drastic deal. What would you do as the pastor? And I'll be honest with you, I'll sit right next to them. I don't say that as, oh, look at me, I'll sit. I hope that's your heart too. I hope it's somebody who completely doesn't fit the norm of Grace First Church, and if you look around, it's kind of a norm, that you would seek to find them out and say, can I sit next to you? Our anger should be towards our own sin, because the holier and more sanctified we become, the more we should hate our sin. And I hate this sin of anger in me. I hate it. And the devil knows at the right time when I've let my guard down to spike it back up again. If you find yourself in this struggle, go to the Lord and repent and turn from this. Repent of the sin that you have in your heart. Repent of the anger you have towards someone. Because we're going to, we, like we said, if you have an offering and a gift at the altar, but remember that your brother has something against you, that means somebody else has something against you. But also we see in Scripture that if you have something against someone else, go and be reconciled to them. Run to them. Talk to them. It's about being reconciled with each other. And honestly, another passage we see over and over and over again that this is what the true heart of a believer looks like. That I seek reconciliation with them. That I also offer forgiveness and reconciliation from my own heart towards other people. I don't let that anger burn inside of me because it becomes so divisive. And if you have something against them, deal with it. Your offering today, your offering in the plate today it's not the offering God wants. If you know that there's somebody, you've done something against somebody else and they hold that against you, 
Your offering the plate today does not mean what it means to the Lord sacrificially. If you know in your head, I've never dealt with this and haven't gone to deal with it. Communion today. If you have something on your heart and there's a brother or sister in Christ that you have something with, then today is the day. I would challenge you if you know that there's something going on in your own heart or your own life when we stand up to sing and do communion at the end that you walk out and you use your phone if they're not in the room. And if they're in the room, you walk across the room and you sit next to them and you say, forgive me, or will you forgive me, or I forgive you, my heart is this way. And we all became uncomfortable at that moment thinking about the absolutely doing something like that. Have the heart that says, if they have an issue with me, I'm going to work on it. Not if they have an issue with me, that's their problem. That's been my heart too many times. If they've got an issue with me, that's their problem. They need to work that out. No, I've probably done something to the point where I've caused the issue. I need to go and be reconciled because of the issue. Be reconciled. Admit your side. Maybe you're the only one that admits wrong in this situation, but at least now you can come to the Lord and say, here's my gift. Go tell someone you have a grief with them and ask them to forgive and tell them through Christ you can forgive them. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 6 because we'll talk about that through the Lord's Prayer. But all of this is meant for the glory of God. All of it. The next thing that he comes to is lust, or your Bible may say adultery. And in this passage, he says, you have heard that it was, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And again, according to the letter of the law, the Pharisees would be like, I've never committed adultery. I've never had relations with another woman. But Christ knows, standing there in that crowd, almost every guy has had some sort of lustful thought towards another woman. Every guy in the room, at some point, mostly have struggled with this issue. As your pastor, I confess that in my past, younger years, I struggled heavily with this issue. And God has redeemed me from this. And I hate that that was part of me. So he knows he's talking to a crowd that has lustful thoughts and intentions. And again, it doesn't just go towards the guys. It could be the ladies as well. If there's lustful intentions on either side, he's going after that. He's going after the wandering eye. And he's going to be very bold about what he says here. And Jesus doesn't want us to merely follow the, the law. He wants his children to do the right things for the right reasons. He wants us to realize the depth and darkness and how much pain and sorrow can come from anger and lust and divorce and the things that he's going to work through. If you have desired in your heart or lusted after a woman or women after men, then you have sinned. You have been a part of this. Just like anger, the first step towards adultery is lust. You don't walk down the street whistling and all of a sudden end up with some other, some other person's spouse having a relationship. It's lust. It's a desire. It's something pushing you towards something else. 
Jesus pushed beyond the external deeds to probe the motives that led to murder. Now he does the same with adultery. He briefly addresses our physical deeds, but he mostly explores the heart issues behind adultery. Looking and recognizing beauty or handsomeness is not the sin, okay? There's people that we go past and you can, you can think that is a beautiful person or that is a handsome person. Uh, there's one pastor that I listened to that said he used to do, while well, he was still struggling with this in his life, he said, I used to say, Lord, bless that beautiful woman and Lord, protect me. It's allowing that look, that glance, that thought to turn into a desire, turn into giving any part of my heart or my desire to that person or lusting that becomes the sin. Perhaps all in our society would agree. We just got done talking about murder. Almost everybody in the room agrees murder is bad. It's wrong. But our society sure doesn't agree with this on adultery. It sure doesn't agree with this on sexual sin. Movies, TVs, books, etc. all actually celebrate and make money off glamorizing this sort of lifestyle. This is a gross thing. Pornography is easily acceptable, accessible and it's an epidemic. It's such a hard thing to realize that all you have to do is open Facebook and you're going to get an ad for something you don't want to look at. And... What have I ever searched that made you think I wanted that? That's another thing. Growing up, it was so much harder to get. It was so hard to get pornography when I was younger. It just wasn't accessible. And now it's on every single thing that you can find. It's at your phone. It's on your phone. It's at your fingertips. And you can honestly be so innocent and stumble upon it through a different app. I've had to delete apps just because of the fact that the ads or the things that are on the apps are terrible. Lingering glances all the way through the addiction to this has been the doorstep for ruining many marriages. If it's something you're currently wrestling through, I I can't stress enough to you that through the word, through prayer, and also through accountability that you find someone who can help you wrestle past these things. Jesus knew that we would struggle with these issues, though. He knew this about us. Again, with a caring, loving heart, he knew throughout all time that lust and adultery was going to be an issue. People are like, well, which I agree, clothing nowadays is not really much clothing anymore, it doesn't feel like. It's hard to even look in certain directions anymore for what people are wearing. But people struggled with lust in the 1700s when they were covered from neck to toe. It's an ongoing, all-time issue. And what Jesus is dealing with here is the root is sin. The root is the desire to fill the cavern with something. We have this cavern inside of us. And even if we are believers, but if we're not believers, there's definitely a cavern inside of us. But as believers, there's something there that if it's not filled by God, if it's not filled by his word, if it's not filled by the truth, and again, a constant filling. It's not going to be one of those things where I believe in God and I'll just kind of leave it here. But there's a cavern inside of us that we feel like has to be filled with something, a perceived need that we think that we have. Every relationship began, every lustful thought entertained, every desire for another begins with a lack of a desire for God. It just does. If God is not what fills us, we will search for things to satisfy us. And the more we pursue that desire, the less God will matter to us. Believer, this is not just for the unsaved, because I think a lot of people think, oh, unsaved people, they, they, they pursue these things. 
It's wrong. Believers can struggle with this. They do struggle with this. They will struggle with this. And and it's going to be a constant thing unless we turn our hearts and our eyes and our desires towards the Lord. And we will never produce our own fruit. That's the thing. We have to stay connected to the vine because the world is constantly bombarding and offering things to us that we can have, that we can lust after, that we can desire. And if we're not connected to the vine and we're trying to live on our own and we're trying to fill ourselves with our own fruit, we're going to find the things of this world look tasty and as soon as you bite into it, it's death. And that's why Jesus goes to the detail of tearing out the eye that, that if it causes sin. He obviously is not encouraging mutilation. He's not saying, okay, if you sin, poke out your eye. Here's the thing. You can still lust with one eye. So he's telling you, he's trying to get to a gruesome imagery here. Cut your hand off. A gruesome imagery of what it looks like if you do these things because he views sin with that same intensity and gruesomeness. Do we, do we see our sin with that same gruesomeness? So he's saying, don't allow yourself to go down that way, but if you do, here's a way to work past this. What he means is get rid of anything that may lead to this sin. If you struggle with this, poking out your eye, cutting off your hand, what he's getting at is if there's a reason why you chase this, if there's a way that you pursue it, if there's something in front of you, then get rid of it. In college, when I was struggling with the same sin, I had a great group of men around me who were able to challenge me and encourage me and, and again, push me to get away from this. And we had a brother in our, our dorm who kept coming every week and he's like, well, I just can't stay off my computer and looking at it. Well, I can't stay off my computer. So finally one week, my friend Adam just walked down to his room, ripped his computer out of the wall, carried it down to his room, and shoved it in this closet and said, you're never getting this back. Go to the library to type your paper. You ain't looking at it there. The eye that he's talking about here is everything inside of me that tries to satisfy me with everything but God. If I have an eye for everything that would satisfy me as I think it will satisfy me, but it's not God, that's the eye that he wants you to pluck out. Anything that could lead down that path, stop playing with it. It's not a toy. It's not something you can control. It is going to devour. Don't tiptoe the line, believing you can stop anytime you want and no one will get hurt. If it's your phone and you're looking at things or you're doing things with your phone or connecting with things with your phone, stop it. Stop using your phone in secret. Only use your phone out in front of other people. If it's your computer, put it in a public place and stop using it for your purposes. If it's a relationship, cut that relationship off. Don't let it go down the road thinking it's just a friendship or it's not going to be anything too serious. The heart moves the eye and the eye inflames the sinful heart. We have to put up guardrails for our lives. It is significant that we take it so seriously that we put guardrails in our lives. We have to have things in place to help us keep on the path. For me, that is people that know me fully and challenge me constantly. I know I hate the sin of my past. I hate it. And I hate that I even did it. But I have to keep guardrails because I don't know when the evil one's going to come along and use something to draw me back into it. What are your guardrails? I mean, I've deleted apps that were harmless for my use, but ads or other things would pop up, so it's not healthy for me. Guardrailing is deletion. 
We have to even monitor our kids. I don't know, you guys have kids, but we let our kids watch YouTube on TV. It's up there on the screen or whatever else. And then we find out that there's people putting things in the kids' cartoons that are way above their maturity level and things they should never, ever hear about. So now they can only watch YouTube on our TV upstairs in front of us so that we know what's going on. It's a guardrail for our kids as well. What guardrails have you put for yourself? Are you willing to take the step to put the guardrails in place or you believe the lie that you can handle it on your own? Do you take this seriously enough to guard yourself, which is what God tells us to do. Christ told us, guard yourself. Only through his power and his strength as a believer. And there's a war within each of us. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean that there's not a war going on inside of you. There's a war going on inside of all of us. There's nobody in here who is righteous. No, not even one. It's only the blood of Jesus that covers us. And so we all need to be real with each other. The fact that we have to live in such a way to where we keep each other accountable, where we live in such a way that we realize everybody's walking through a war. Just because there has been a struggle in your flesh doesn't mean you're not a believer. Christians do have evil desires, but we are to be at war with those desires. And some people are struggling more in their war than others are. And we need to walk alongside one another in that way. Galatians 5, starting in verse 17, says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other and to prevent you from doing what you would. The main thing to learn from this verse is that Christians experience struggle within. And if you said to yourself when I was describing the flesh, I have a lot of that still left in me. I still have a lot of those things in me. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means you're being real with yourself at the moment. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires, be at war. If you're at peace and comfort with those desires, that's the issue. John Piper said it this way, Conflict in your soul is not all bad. Even though we long for the day when our flesh will be utterly defunct, and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts. Yet there is something worse than the war within between flesh and spirit, namely, no war within because the flesh controls the citadel and all the outposts. Praise God for the war within. Serenity in sin is death. The spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. I want to make one last statement on this subject of lust and adultery and whatever else. One last thing for us to think about is this. In the past and throughout history and time, church people are not very caring for this situation. It seems to be a scarlet letter that we kind of push people away and we kind of keep them at a distance or we immediately throw judgment on someone because, well, I've never struggled with that. Well, we're adding the word yet to the end of that sentence. So if I could, I would ask you to put your self-righteous stones on the ground and look for a way to give your heart, your ear, your shoulder, and anything else you can give to someone who's walking through this because it is their redemption and their reconciliation not your gossip that matters. And that's why we can move on to the last point, which is this, grace and mercy. That was heavy. (laughs) But we can get to the point of grace and mercy. I want you to remember as we walk through these passages, as we talked about anger 
and lust. As I'm sure most people in the room can say, at some point I've struggled with both of those in one way or another. I want you to remember as we walk through these and the passages that will come after them as well, that we have a God who is gracious and merciful. Here's the thing. God does give warnings here. He doesn't just whistle by and say, don't do these things. There are warnings. There are strict warnings, and we don't get to throw those things off. He's very stern, very clear. This is the way to go, and if not, here's the things that will happen. And he says them in such a clear and present way for our own good and change. But also throughout Scripture, we see God's love, grace, and mercy for sinners. That is why we can worship because I can't do that on my own or feel that in my, inside myself. Forgiveness and peace is at the ready if we repent. Forgiveness and peace are at the ready if we repent and are poor in spirit. It goes back to the Beatitudes. When we repent and truly repent of sin that is in our lives, we will be poor in spirit. And we will work our way through the Beatitudes because we will be refreshed and anew. And if John, 1 John 1.9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, please hear this. If you are wrestling this morning, if you have walked through something, if you're just absolutely struggling in your own place, or if you remember a time when you were, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just and might will. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, takes the next step from all unrighteousness. The answer to guilt is real repentance. When David was told, you're the man by Nathan, and he comes to this realization, Psalm 51. This is David's words after he realizes what he had done with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered and all, everything else. He says this. This is his heart to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. If you jump down to verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. A renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Over the last few months, God has really refreshed my spirit. He's done a work that could never come from me. praise him every day for that. Literally. My heart was hard. I was struggling even through the sabbatical and I told you about the conversation with Tegan and how that flipped it on its head. I'll just be honest with you. I had almost gotten to complete burnout over my sabbatical and I even wasn't sure what to do next. I've shared this with the elders. I didn't know what to do. I literally didn't know what to do. But God. Amen. 
God, through the power of his word and the work of the Holy Spirit, has done radical things in my life. I've never in my life been more thankful. It's a new and fresh fire that can only be for, that could be for you too, believer. It's for you. And I've been listening to a song every day for the last two weeks. I'm going to read just a few of the lyrics. Bear with me. It comes from Cody Carnes. It says, I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I, was create, I wasn't created to bear it alone. Sorry. I hear your invitation. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. Your son for redemption, you saw my condition, had a plan from the start. Your son for redemption, the price for my heart. And I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand. I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. My heart has been in your sights long before my first breath. Running into your arms is running to life from death. And I feel this rush deep in my chest. Your mercy is calling out just as I am. You pull me in. And I know I need you now. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Sorry about that. The rest of it, uh, the chorus goes, I run to the Father, I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reasons to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again. Prodigal, struggling heart in the room, run to the Father. Before communion, run to the Father. Lay it all out. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's redemption. Let's pray. God, thank you for a church that loves As we wrestle through these things, God, and we struggle, it's only through you that we find true redemption. It's only that through you that we can have joy. I pray that if there's anyone in the room that needs to lay something down, that they would do it. Stop thinking that they're supposed to carry it alone. pray that we would realize the depths of what's going to happen with our communion and why we take it and help us to remember you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.